0: HVAC 360 is brought to you today by The Paperwork Pig. Was one of your New Year's resolutions to clean up a little bit around the office? Need to have someone to blame for lost documents but haven't had a dog since grade school? Introducing The Paperwork Pig, your one-stop solution to organizational nirvana. Pile of papers? Gone. Important memo? Never got it. Not to mention the pranks you could pull with the piles of Paperwork Pig output. But you didn't hear that last one from us. Paperwork pig also acts as a great stress reliever. Yell it at all you want. He doesn't give an a wink. Pick your pig out today. Welcome back. Matt Nelson here, your host for HVAC 360, helping you be the best and the brightest in the field of HVAC. We do that by sharing lessons learned and talking to experts in the field. But I don't stop there. No, I want you to encourage you to double down on your weekly helping of HVAC knowledge by hopping on over to HVAC360.com and join my growing community of people just like you. Don't forget to mention the membership site. Uh, Still open at a deep discount for a limited number of people for a limited amount of time. Visit the website today. All right, with that out of the way, what's up for this week? This week I wanted to share some information about cooling towers and some things that I've learned in the field. Just some niceties, things you should think about during design. So I guess not everybody knows about cooling towers. They're not exactly um, on every project. I think the one neat thing to do, um, you can actually go to Google Earth and take a look at large downtowns. Um, if you go to like New York City, Chicago, just you know pick one around you. I mean, even even Cleveland would have the same thing. If you look on the rooftops of large buildings uh, from a, like a Google view, Google Earth view, uh, you'll see the you know you have the round propeller fans that are kind of an indication of that's where cooling towers are. They're all over the place especially in big buildings so what exactly are cooling towers you know i'm gonna kind of broad brush this Uh, a lot of you may know what they are but you know they're actually giant air scrubbers no just kidding um but they actually they actually can be that's one of their main features is they just kind of aggregate all this stuff that's in the air whether it be dirt dust um there's a lot of cottonwood around here that gets sucked in there from the cottonwood trees Uh, They are very efficient at scrubbing the air. So there's a lot of dirt and debris and stuff that actually gets in there. But primarily they are used in reality for rejecting heat into the atmosphere using water. Uh, They're essentially used because they're better than once-through condensers. So when you have a process that you want to use water as your cooling medium, the first option that you have is to use what they call a once-through cooler. Which basically means, and it's as crazy as it sounds, there are still installations out there of varying sizes of what this is. But they connect a potable water source. It doesn't necessarily have to be potable water, but in a lot of cases it is because it's connected to the municipal system. They connect a potable water source and they run that cold water, because the water is, you know, around 50 degrees, depending on where you are in the world um but it's around 50 degrees so it can actually cool down the uh or you can reject heat to it through your compressor now you know they usually have like a some sort of shell type of heat exchanger that they, it actually goes through but then it just it goes through once and then it dumps down the drain and when water was cheap and you know nearly free that was a great solution uh but that is no longer the case so, what they've—the next step in the evolution of things—is to actually recycle that water. There's still a lot of water use. Uh, there's evaporation. There's blowdown. Uh, we'll kind of get into that a little bit more. And it's still not a great solution in some water-starved areas. So, you really need to check the financials. Whether it makes sense for you and your project to use a cooling tower. Does it? Does it make sense? Obviously. So, these are some of the things that you can think of during your design and you need to weigh those options very carefully so the types of cooling towers there's a lot i, I linked a couple of videos in the show notes if you go to hvac360.com slash 114 uh there is that uh there's a video links for youtube you can search it up on yourself just a couple of that i found um also if you have an Ashrae handbook handy uh, go to HVC Systems and Equipment. Chapter 40 is what you'd want to search for. And they have a nice rundown of cooling towers there as well. Primarily what I'm talking about and the experience, like 90% of what I've dealt with in my career, are induced draft cooling towers. Now, there's two varieties. There's a cross flow and a counter flow. And all that means is that typically the air is coming out going in on the sides and coming out on the top where there's a big prop fan and when it goes in the sides if the fill is oriented so the water kind of trickles down from top to bottom and the, the air is coming in through the sides then you're going to have a cross flow configuration so the water and the air are crossing now, if you have a counterflow, what that means is you're still going to have air coming in from the sides, but you're going to have it turning 90 degrees and going straight up. So that's going to be counter to the water kind of trickling down the fill from the top. So that's kind of the difference between the cross flow and the counter flow. So you might ask, what are some of the components that you're going to find in these induced draft cooling towers? Well, obviously, I think that the important thing, and I'm not gonna, I'm gonna hit on some things that you know I find novel or were important to me. Um, the structure is going to be the first critical component of selecting or knowing about a cooling tower. Uh, you can make different. You can make cooling towers out of different materials. You can make them out of wood. I these are the the biggest and the most industrial, but they would be that you can make them out of wood and you know that's that's perfectly perfectly fine. Um I don't see a lot of those to be honest with you. I think that's more of an older variety. And in fact, I've never specified one. I've never really worked on one, but I know they exist. And it is, uh, especially in an industrial application, you know, it's cheap. It's wood. You can maintain it. All sorts of things. But typically, the two varieties that you're going to see, you're going to see um, galvanized and you're going to see stainless steel. Now, typically, if you want... The cheapest cooling tower—it's just going to be all galvanized. If you want to step it up a notch, you're going to make some of the components in the cooling tower. You're going to specify them to be stainless steel, to be resistant to you know rust and you know even gal- galvanized is, is resistant to rust to a point, but the longevity—you uh, could really scour the stainless steel and clean it, and it would be just fine. However, you could have the entire thing made out of stainless steel. Those are premium. Now, I guess it's important there to note that there was, I guess, one project in my career where we went in and we were going to do a replacement of the cooling towers. Now, we didn't, you know, we didn't look at the cooling towers too closely, and we had the manufacturer's rep come in, take a look at them, uh, and see what his opinion was and what he said was, you know, you guys are going to be crazy. These are all stainless steel. To rip out stainless steel cooling towers was just unheard of. We weren't it was a retrofit application. We weren't changing the load to, you know, the load a lot. We weren't changing a lot of things. We just wanted to update and upgrade the cooling towers themselves. So we ended up replacing some of the components in them, but we left the structure alone so we kept that stainless steel so it's important to know what you have before you go changing some things out and know that that's an option to add some stainless steel into a galvanized cooling tower just there are certain components that are going to last a lot longer if you have the sump you know stainless steel that's going to help you out uh different pieces but you know again talk to your manufacturer's rep they're going to be the most knowledgeable about this now, another thing that's in the, the, within the structure, obviously, is the fan. That induced fan that sits on top. And that's gonna, either going to be belt-driven or it's going to be a gear drive. So those are kind of the two ways you can get it. It's not necessarily... I don't even know. They might make a direct drive now. But typically, in the past, I've seen it either geared, gear-driven or a belt. Now, you're going to have a, a... A lot of times, you're going to have a VFD motor... That's going to be associated. The fans are big enough. You're going to require really a VFD motor. Uh, But that hasn't always been the case. Uh, Typically, you'd see cooling towers with a single speed fan. Uh, If it was a little bit fancy, you might see a two speed uh, fan motor. For that particular uh, cooling tower. And, you know, that would be it. With a VFD, that gives you obviously a lot more Uh, play to be able to dial in the temperatures you know coming back from the cooling tower so another thing especially dealing with the fan is that you're going to have a vibration switch now vibration switch is a a critical component to the cooling tower fan because if you have an unbalanced fan and, and you're like well you know you It should be balanced, right? Well, in wintertime, you can still run these in wintertime applications. And obviously, I'm talking to those people in freezing weather climates. But you're going to have water that might build up on the fan blades themselves. Now, if there is an imbalance, you can really uh, damage uh, that fan. And you might have components flying off, and that's not good. You can even have ice flying off. Uh, if there's enough vibration in there, what the switch does is, if there's enough vibration, it will kill the operation of the fan, so you don't have fan blades flying off, or you don't have sheets of ice from the fan blades, you know, flying off and being, you know, thrown, you know, hundreds of feet, you know, that's that's dangerous. So the vibration switch is there. That's one of the things that it's not always easy to test uh, because it's not really safe to be in, in the cooling tower while the fan is on operation. The uh, vibration switch tends to be right by the motor uh, in that location. So it's not safe to test. But, you know, it's it's there nonetheless. I just want to make sure that, that you know if it's not there, it should be there um, as a safety device. Now, there's going to be a drift eliminator that's going to be underneath the fan in these uh, configurations typically and that's to vent, that's to kind of prevent as much moisture from being evaporated as possible. And what I, what I mean by that is you're going to have because all the air is being, you know, sucked up and out the top, this is a chance to kind of reduce the amount of uh moisture that escapes. There's gonna be some that's, you know, it's, it's in the air, it's, it's, it's humidifying the air. Um, that you're not gonna get, but there are other things that when you force it through this drift eliminator, you're actually gonna get some water to condense out and, and drip back into the cooling tower. So drift eliminators are important. Uh, the next component you're gonna have is you're gonna have fill. Now this is typically gonna be PVC, and it comes in, a, there's a couple different configurations, but this is what the water kind of drips over. And, you know, this is where the, the, the magic happens. This is where the heat of the fluid, of the water, gets transferred to the air. Now, you're going to have the sump, and that's going to be on the bottom. Now, the sump actually, and this is, you know, another thing that I found, you know, interesting when I, you know, not all, all cooling towers are the same. You're going to have sumps that, um, some are indoors, some are outdoors, uh, that's two different options. You can actually have an indoor sump, and I've seen a couple different configurations, especially if you have something that's going to be operating all the year round. They don't, they don't drain the cooling tower in the winter um, to prevent freezing because they don't need it. They can use free cooling. There are some places where that's not the case. They keep it around all year, and they found that it's economical to have this large sump, and they put it on the inside. So that's an option you know when you're thinking about design it doesn't always have to be outdoors Um, if you do have multiple cooling towers that are side by side um, you're going to have some sort of connectors depending on your valving and how the piping works and uh, this is these connectors are from sump to sump to sump so you don't end up filling one sump say you had three cooling towers you don't overfill one sump and have it you know Flow over, and then the other two sumps are, you know, don't have as much water. You want to, you want to keep them all about the same level, so it, it drains at the same rate. So, and a couple of different things that you're going to have. Uh, if again, you know, this is going to be for the, you know, the freezing temperatures. You're going to have immersion heaters, and I'll go into those a little bit more. But that that keeps it from freezing solid, so you can kind of, you know, continue to use it. Uh, but that's generally located in the sump. Now, another important component that tends to be very problematic, um, you know, as opposed to the uh, PVC drift, the, the fill um, that occasionally needs to be cleaned or sometimes it gets brittle so it breaks and it needs to be replaced. Now, generally not a, you know, huge expense. Um, the water fill line, very problematic in a lot of cases. Generally, it's going to be a float ball. So when the water level goes down, it's, you know, just like a toilet tank. When the water level goes down in the tank, it's, you know, it opens up the uh, the fl- fill valve and it's going to fill until the float ball comes up to a certain level. So it's very rudimentary. There's some cases and a lot of cases where this float ball gets stuck. So you continually fill, you're continually filling the sump. Uh, obviously, you're going to have an overflow and an overflow sensor, or you might. Uh, in some cases, you, you may not, but um, you may not be able to detect it. So if, if the float ball gets stuck, and you're filling the sump, it's just going to overflow. So that is uh, a waste of water, and, and you, need to, you need to catch that. Now, obviously, since the, uh, the water fill line, a lot of the tower water is going to be evaporating. There's going to be a, a metering requirement. Now, this is less to do with energy, uh, more to do with water conservation, and to avoid sewer charges. Uh, because if you can meter the amount of water that goes in... Uh, and obviously you're going to maybe monitor the overflow that or the blowdown that comes out, you can take that differential, and that's just evaporated water that you don't necessarily have to pay for on the sewer charges. So you want to be able to avoid that. So that's why there's extra metering there at the cooling tower. Now, the blowdown is important because obviously the water evaporates, but it doesn't take with it the dissolved solids, any sort of, you know, muck and crud that gets uh, filtered in or filtered out of the air by the cooling tower so that's something that needs to be you need to blow that down um, occasionally for a cooling tower just to keep those total dissolved solids at a respectable level obviously if you if you don't um, that's not only really gonna that's primarily going to affect your chiller when it goes back to your chiller, uh, you know that's so. It's 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 not good. Uh, final word, obviously, water treatment. You need to have chemicals to control the biologicals. Uh, I have a whole separate uh, talk about this, especially with Legionella. That's one of the hot topics with cooling towers. Um, but go ahead and listen to um, that episode, and I'll link it up in the show notes for those who are interested. All right. So, what do I? Um, what are some of the issues around cooling towers? Now, obviously, we know that they're an open system. They're larger, and with anything that's going to be on the roof, uh, architects love to hide it. So, knowing the location of it, knowing the clearances that are required to prevent the reentrainment. Obviously, the reentrainment will lead to derating. Um, that's a big problem with cooling towers. They need to have room to breathe so there's really fine requirements as far as uh where all those issues have to be uh things to think about variable flow just because you have uh i know there's uh, a lot of energy savings that go along with pumps and fans you got a vfd on the fan um you can also do a, a variable flow on the pumping system to save pump energy uh which is which is pretty big but you gotta watch out for partial fill coverage um so if you have some isolation valves that don't work properly or maybe you don't have any at all, um, you could run into a scenario if you have multiple cooling towers where the fill is going to be, you know, where it's going to go up to the fill um, and it's not going to spread out like it should. So you're there again, you're going to be derating the fill um, or you're going to be de- derating the capacity of the tower just by not flowing enough water through it. So just like uh, many, many devices, there should be a minimum flow that's flowed over a tower uh, to be able to make sure that you get the desired result that you want. Um, along with that, isolation valves. Isolation valves, especially when you're commissioning it uh, or troubleshooting it, obviously it's a, it's a great idea to have visible indicators on these valves. These valves are bigger, um, so there's ones that you know are okay, um, as far as being able to see it from a distance. Um, but if you can't get and you know, obviously cooling towers can get, you know, 14, 16 feet in the air, uh, you may not be able to, you know, get real close to these valves. So anything that can help you identify whether a valve is open or closed, whether it's isolating or not, um, is really going to be a help uh, to you as commissioning uh, or whether uh, the maintenance people, uh, just to be able to understand what position the valves are in, so visible indicators. I've seen some that are you know nice bright and yellow, and and if they're closed, they're red. Uh, so that's a nice contrast, um, very visible uh, for you to see. Obviously, if freezing is a concern, here again we're talking about the sump heaters. Um, you're also going to have heat trace. Uh, heat trace is for you know just you know for the for the piping for the you know, water fill line, you're going to have heat trace to make sure that that doesn't freeze. And again, an easy and uh, relatively inexpensive way is just to make sure that there's run lights. Um, so if it's on, that you can verify that, yes, in fact, you know, it should be working or it is on. And, you know, you can check the, the sump heaters and you can check the uh, the heat trace on the piping Because those things are really hard, to. I mean, unless you have a thermographic um, uh, camera, you're not able to necessarily tell whether they're on, uh, whether they're doing their job. And, uh, you know, just having a red indicator light, just saying it's on is is very helpful. Also, pump location uh, is very important. Uh, Pump location, now, especially if you're dealing with something with an indoor sump, um, pump location is going to be very critical. Uh, I've had a scenario where I had an indoor sump and the pumps were right next to the indoor sump and there wasn't a, a lot of uh, elevation change. There might have been uh, six feet from where the pipe came out of the indoor sump down into the suction inlet of the uh, of the um, um, uh, condenser water pump. So that's critical in a couple of different applications depending how fill how full the indoor sump is and this was the problem we were running into when it, when it first started up it just sucked all the water down and what it did is it it created this vortex in the uh in the in the sump at the outlet of it and that air was getting entrained into the pump now we had to actually add in some sort of anti vortex um, you know, cro- basically just kind of a, you know, a cross, a, a metal plate that was, uh, you know, at, at 45 or at uh, nine degrees to each other and just stick that into that. And that would prevent and that would break up that rotation of the fluid as it exited the indoor sump. So that was one of the solutions that we had to kind of implement, which is, you know, getting into those indoor sumps is not always tricky. I mean, it's a confined space. Uh, it's not always tricky. It is always tricky. It's a confined space. you need you know special requirements to, to get in there because uh, a lot definitely a lot can happen in a short amount of time there. So uh, freezing concerns, uh, the air entrainment, the pumps, you know it was actually was one of the few locations as an engineer that I really ran into the net positive suction head requirement for that and it was that, that particular um, instance because it was so close, you didn't have a lot, you know, it's an open system. So you just didn't have, a, you know, they didn't have that huge column of water pushing against the, the inlet of the pump. So net positive suction head was, you know, was an issue there. So we need to make sure that the, the lever the levels were, uh, right. Now, obviously, um, other things you can have uh, side stream filters are something else that I've seen on you know the cooling tower loops um, just to filter out all the muck that can get entrained in the system. Um, so filters are a big concern with the cooling towers. A-, a lot of them have screens, you know, large screens, and I mean they're, there's just about anything that can get stuck in a cooling tower. wouldn't Wouldn't surprise me really at all. So. That was uh, basically kind of some observations that I had over cooling towers. So I hope that was helpful. Thanks so much for listening. If you know somebody who looks uh, or is looking for more information about this topic, consider passing this episode along. Uh, If you're not a subscriber, consider joining uh, the growing community of people just like you over at HVAC360.com. And don't forget... Uh, about the membership deal. Lastly, I'd be greatly honored again if you would uh, consider leaving a review and rating on Apple Podcasts. Obviously, the offer still stands to give you a shout-out. I really do appreciate those. Well, that's a wrap for this episode of HVAC 360. I'm Matt Nelson, helping you be the best and the brightest in the field of HVAC. And as always, know what you build and share what you know.